I'm going to ask us now, if we would, to stand up. Let's declare our faith. We're going to read responsibly, kind of teeing up our topic this morning. We're going to read responsibly about the topic of evangelism, which is really a fancy word for sharing God's love and his life with others. We're reading from a section that this responsive reading is taken from uh, one of Jesus' conversations with his good friends in John chapter 14. And then also... The end of it is his commission. We talked about that a few weeks ago to us as Christians from Matthew 28. So I will read the light print and you read the darker print. Jesus, we will not be troubled today, but we will put our trust in you. We also know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, you told us to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach them all that you have taught us. Our older brother Paul called us ambassadors, which means that we represent you wherever we are. May God's boldness and his peace be upon you. You may be seated. I'm going to try to keep myself disciplined today, so I'm going to speak mostly from a text, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Today is our fifth conversation in a series of lessons we've called Spread, and we've been talking about evangelism, and that's really a fancy word for sharing God's life and his hope with others. So God is in the business of spreading his great love and his expansive grace so that more and more people are infected with unshakable hope and with his glorious divine life, and we are part of that process. Now, I know that there are those of us here this morning who are not connected to God, and I really hope, and and I've prayed that this would still be a conversation that can connect with you, that God will speak to you through this. I also know that there are those of us here this morning who are thinking, sharing God's love with others, that's not, that's for the professional religious people, but it's really not. This is a process into which all of us have been invited. I brought this spreader this morning because I think it's really a perfect illustration of the process, at least in the larger sense. And this spreader, if we think about this as an illustration of the evangelism or the sharing God's love process, I think the right way to think about that is the me in this analogy is God, which is appropriate, right, Diane? (laughs) And the seed would be God's great love or God's great story that gets planted in our hearts. The spreader is us. We're part of the process. Evangelism is an incredibly important process. Uh, sharing God's love and life with others is preeminently important. It's a process where literally everything is at stake. Life versus death is at stake. Freedom versus slavery is at stake. Meaning and purpose versus 
Empty effort is at stake. Forgiveness and healing versus shame and hiding is at stake. Literally, nothing is more important. I want to tee up, if I can, this morning, a video. And the video is just meant, this is just three minutes meant to inspire us. It's really a neat video that will inspire us, get us in the mood for this conversation, because it will inspire us about how important the process of sharing God's love with others is. So watch this video if you would. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing you, I find my rest. And without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need Father, we need you. We need you to make a career. We, we need you to make a marriage. We need you to be who we 
we're made to be, who we long to be, we are at odds with ourself unless we're connected to you. And Lord, our neighbors need you and our coworkers and our friends. Would you please give us your heart, break our hearts with the things that break your heart? Would you inspire us to be your hands and your feet and your voice and your eyes? Take our lives and let us be an offering to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Literally nothing is more important than the spread of God's great story. Personal meaning, purpose, and connection are at stake. Love and life are at stake. So how do we do it? How do we spread God's great story? Well, last week we talked about the first part of that answer. We looked at an amazing section of one of the letters of Peter, and Peter was one of Jesus' best friends. And according to Peter, evangelism starts with our actions which grow out of who we are. Evangelism starts with our actions. It starts with our actions which grow out of who we are. Eric Knox sent me this picture this week. I thought this was great. It goes with that message. The world's screwed up. Governments are corrupt. People are so evil and self-serving and common decency is becoming extinct. The only way left to rebel is to be a legitimately good person. <laughs> That's not a picture of me. We are the kind of people who live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. That's who we are. It begins with our life. It begins with our actions. But it doesn't end there. Today we're going to look at the second part of the evangelism process. We are also the kind of people who bring God's life and hope to others by explaining the life and hope that we have. In fact, we do this in spite of our circumstances. We do this in spite of our circumstances. In other words, what begins with our actions eventually ends with our words. We testify about the hope that we have. I'm going to read this morning from 1 Peter chapter 3, the same letter of Peter. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. So if you have a Bible, would you open that to 1 Peter? It's at the back of the New Testament. Or if you have a Bible app, dial in on your Bible app. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, and it will be on the screen for you. And listen to these words, I believe from God, literally. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. First of all, mistreatment will not harm us. Again, we are the kind of people who are eager to do good, and if this should cause some kind of mistreatment, that will result in our blessing. The follower of Christ is never a victim. When we are treated well for doing good, we're blessed. And if we should be mistreated for doing good, we're still blessed. So we don't fear what others fear. 
We aren't intimidated by our neighbor's achievements or the accolades and awards that others receive or the awards that their children receive. We aren't intimidated by senior executives in our company. We aren't overly impressed by highly placed political connections or by the latest promotion of our friends. We aren't demoralized by the new car or the new deck down the street from us. We aren't unsettled because our career doesn't seem to have the same lift that someone else's does. We aren't overly impressed by where someone went to college or where their daughter was accepted to go. We don't fear what they fear. We are people who are free from the worship of success. We don't need the validation of monetary excess or the praise of our neighbors and co-workers. We don't set apart comfort or pleasure as our hope and safety and goal, but we set apart Christ as Lord. Incidentally, in this section, Peter is quoting from an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13 say this. Listen to this. Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. What's especially interesting about this passage is that Isaiah is clearly talking about God. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to set apart, Isaiah says. Now Peter is either impressed by God himself, or he has stepped out of his right mind because he applies this passage and this verse to Jesus to his friend. Think about the impact that Jesus had on his initial small group. I've been in a small group with several of you, and I would never be tempted to count any of you as equal with the Lord Almighty. And I doubt seriously that any of you would be tempted to do the same with me. And yet, here is Peter telling us that one of the keys to the process of giving God's life and hope to others, in fact, one of the keys for the living of your own life is to start by setting apart Jesus Christ as the ultimate thing in your mind and heart. To set your hope and your expectation and your longing to place your trust in Him. To make Him your Lord. This is so very difficult. But it's critically important for us to find our ultimate thing and our validation in Him and from Him. I was reminded as I was thinking and praying about this, about our oldest, Jordan, some of you know, Jordan leads worship for us here, and Jordan went to UVA, and UVA is a prestigious school that's difficult to get into in, in Virginia and in, in the country. And it's often a place that parents, especially of younger kids, would love for their children to go. So I couldn't help it, especially during the first couple of years that Jordan was at UVA, I felt Somehow I felt validated because our son went to UVA. And I found myself ridiculously finding incredible ways to bring this up to people. We would be at Graham or Dawson's soccer game, and I would find myself saying, someone say, the weather's beautiful today. Yes, it is. I hear the weather's beautiful in Charlottesville. Speaking of Charlottesville, my son goes to, I don't know if you knew. This is difficult to find our center our validation our meaning in him to set apart jesus christ as lord when we set apart christ as lord we have what peter called earlier in this same letter a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead end quote 
In fact, hope is one of God's favorite synonyms for our connection to Him. He says that that hope is an anchor for our soul. He says it's a purifier of our characters. And when we set apart Christ as Lord, when we experience this bone-shattering hope for ourselves, then we become the kind of people who are always ready to explain it to others. We're the kind of people who are prepared to give an answer when others question us about this hope. Here's how it works. Someone asks Terry Foch to watch their newborn for a few minutes while they run an errand. It happens to be at exactly the time that Terry will get home from work. She's tired and she doesn't want to do it, but Terry is the kind of person who does do it. She does good deeds. And when she does, she's creating an opportunity for this person to one day ask why. Look, I know you're tired and busy. Why are you kind and helpful anyway? How is it that you have the kind of hope that you have and Terry will be prepared to give an answer? Tim Eagle served on Gateway's equipment team for years. I've talked about how serving on the equipment team at Gateway increases your sexiness. It, It doesn't always work. More than that, the overwhelming majority of times that Gateway has met for anything, a children's event, a youth event, a special event for the church, Tim has been there to help set up and tear down. He's also helped several of us move over the years from one place to another, and many of us have marveled at what a servant Tim is. In fact, Tim is such a servant that he allows us to forget that he is almost constantly in back pain. In addition, Tim's retina detached a few years ago, leaving him virtually sightless in one eye. Think about that the next time you're walking in front of him in the parking lot. But Tim never complains. He never whines. He simply keeps on serving. Why, Tim? How could you continue to press on in the face of such difficult circumstances? How do you refuse to get bitter and quit? And Tim is the kind of person who's ready to give an answer. George Gahunga had to leave his home country and immigrate to America. He had to leave because of violence to his family and because of the threat of violence to his own person. With no connections, no money, and no power, and no understanding of how to exert power in American culture, George was forced to adjust to the nuances and machinations of a brand new and very strange place. He lived from place to place at the mercy of strangers, really. He eventually stumbled into a workable living situation but had no means of employment and so no income. He was cut off from loved ones, from a sense of purpose, and from his culture. His extensive training and education and his experience were virtually lost to him. Plus, he had to learn a brand new language. And through it all, George not only persevered and survived, as those of you who know who know him, he smiled and he served. Why, George? What possible reason do you have for hanging on to hope, and what kind of hope could it be? And George is the kind of person who is ready to give an answer. When we hear very bad news from the doctor, when our child does not get into the gifted and talented program or make the travel softball team like we expected, when we're overlooked or mistreated at work, when our manager consistently hassles us and seems to work against us, when our marriage settles in, far to the south of where we would have expected when we have a family relational crisis or a financial crisis, we are the kind of people whose hope does not die. It may flicker, but it does not die. It's a living hope. It's an anchor for our souls. It rests in Him, so it rests securely, and others around us want to know why. And we are the kind of people who are prepared to give an answer. 
By the way, uh, the word answer in our passage translates the Greek word apologia, where we get our word apologetic. It means literally to make a reasoned argument or a defense for something. And I want you to notice how quick Peter is to explain what this defense should look like and how it should present itself. Far from being defensive or offensive, we are to make our answer gently and with respect. I love the way one commentary I was reading explained this. Quote, not enough to simply give an answer. How they gave an answer and the life behind the answer are far more important than the words they speak. That is, they are to respond with gentleness and respect. This indicates an unwillingness to establish one's own justice, to defend oneself, or to attack an opponent. But instead, this is a committing of one's cause to God. So instead of a response that puts down the other person or criticizes the enemy, Peter wishes a gentle, humble explanation in tune with the attitude of Christ. End quote. This makes me think of the cultural comments I began making a couple of weeks ago here in the service. I said then that I believe we are, in America, transitioning into a new cultural moment. Tolerance today for all truth claims and all lifestyles is not only a high value, which, by the way, it was for Jesus, but you could argue that tolerance today is the supreme value someone here sent me an article by Kristen Powers from USA Today Online a couple of weeks ago that spoke eloquently into this current cultural moment and really the irony of the limits of tolerance. The article started like this, Welcome to the Dark Ages Part 2. We have slipped into an age of unenlightenment where you must fall in line behind the mob or face the consequences. How ironic that the persecutors this time around are the so-called intellectuals. They claim to be liberal while behaving as anything but. The touchstone of liberalism is tolerance of different ideas, yet this mob exists to enforce conformity of thought and to delegitimize any dissent from its sanctioned worldview. Intolerance is its calling card. End quote. I agree wholeheartedly with this article. Powers served up example after example of how the new tolerance is actually censoring what might be called traditional values. It's open season on Christian values while all others must be tolerated. Someone else sent me another article making the same point. This second article offered up an interesting comparison, and I'm a sports guy so I couldn't help but be interested with the way Michael Sam has been treated to the way Tim Tebow was treated. And Michael Sam is a former college football player who was recently drafted into the NFL and happens to be gay. He's the first openly gay athlete to be drafted in the NFL. Uh, Sam's decision and the decision by the St. Louis Rams to draft him was highly celebrated in many places all across our culture, highly celebrated, including all across the NFL and even in the White House. Tebow, on the other hand, is a former NFL quarterback who was a very outspoken Christian during his years in the league. It should be noted that most of the coverage of Tebow was positive. But he did have his critics who thought he was an overzealous nutcase. For example, I watched one time an 
an ESPN newscaster go off on, strongly agree with a, a former NFL quarterback who energetically criticized Tebow and said he should keep his religion to himself. But the, the criticisms were in the minority. But here's the point, and the point of the article. The point is that no one thought, not even for a moment, about silencing Tebow's critics. None of Tebow's critics were fined. None were forced to go through sensitivity training, both of which actually happened to Michael Sam critics. And the difference, I think, is startling. And yet, how should we respond? How do we speak into this cultural moment? How do we address the current climate where it seems that the supreme emphasis on tolerance will not allow criticism of any viewpoint except an historical Christian viewpoint? How do we represent ourselves in conversations at the office or at dinner or on Facebook? Well, the answer is simple. We represent ourselves with gentleness and respect. We do not display anger or sarcasm. Both of the articles I referenced, by the way, majored on sarcasm. We do not put others down. We do not exert our power. We don't need to be fearful that our point won't be heard. God will always be heard. We just need to be ready to give an answer which explains the hope that we have. It doesn't mean we don't speak truth. But we are the kind of people who remember that the how of the truth is as important as the truth itself. Did you know that adults under 30 are leaving the church in record numbers? Pollsters tell us that one of the reasons they're leaving the church is that they identify older Christians as angry right-wingers who disdain homosexuals and are skeptical of global warming. I honestly believe pollsters have exaggerated this sensibility among young adults. Plus, I believe the criticism is mostly unfair. But let's don't miss this. There's no doubt that we have to some degree helped create this impression. And I don't believe it's because of the truth we've spoken. I believe it's because of the way we have spoken. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I want to give you two assignments this week. I want you to pray for, and we're going to pray right now. I want you to pray for an opportunity this week to give an answer for the hope that you have. I want you to pray for an opportunity when you can say to someone, yeah, you know, I understand completely. You know what, I used to think about my life, especially religion and spirituality. I used to think about spirituality as something I had to do. I spelled spirituality, D-O. But you know what, now I spell spirituality, D-O-N-E. 
I realize that's what God has done for me. Pray for an opportunity to share that this week. Now, somebody's thinking, shoot, Ed, that was pretty good. Maybe you should be there. But no, it's that you are the one to give an answer for the hope you have. It's your answer they're looking for. And it will be exactly right. Because God will be in that moment. He's there. It's just we often miss Him. Let's pray for an opportunity this week to share God's life and His hope with someone. This week. He said one more time, <laughs> pray for an opportunity this week that our eyes will be opened. Because they don't always come and say, hey, can you please tell me you know, about your whole religion deal? That's not how it works. People express their neediness in a lot of different ways. So do you and I. So let's pray for moments of connection this week. Moments when we can share God's hope and His life with others. Secondly, we are in the middle of July this year going to do a jungle safari club in several locations in this area. Number one, we need your help. Repeat after me. I will help. <laughs> one, two, three. That was not anywhere near enthusiastic enough. One, two, three. That's still not enthusiastic. <laughs> wow. I will help. We need your help. We need your help to run the clubs. You know what else we need? And what you need? And what your neighbor needs? Their kids need to be invited. This is going to be a fun, riotous opportunity. It's going to be great. It's Friday night. We're going to have what Aaron calls organized mass chaos, OMC. We'll be out on the field here at Mercer. We'll be having a great time. And in the middle of that, we'll be able to say, hey, God loves you. And for some of those kids, that will be a message that's good soil. And that seed is going to be cast, and it's going to catch. Invite your neighbors. Start telling them already. Start telling their kids. Jungle Safari Club at our church. That's right, jungle. If you come, I will make a Tarzan call. Only say that if it'll be attractive. <laughs> Invite your children's neighbors to come to Gateway's Jungle Safari Club. This is our outreach this summer. We need you. So on three, I will help. One, two, three. That's not bad. Let's pray. Good grief, Lord, we need you. You know, honestly, Father, I, I, I'm thinking right now, I was saying over and over again, I think truth that we're this kind of people. And there's a part of me that's thinking, I'm not that kind of person. But because of my connection with you, I am, and I'm becoming that kind of person, and I see it. I see it more in myself than I did ten years ago. And Lord, I pray that this morning over this gathered group of people this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that we would be becoming those kind of people. I pray that our lives would be filled with You. I pray that we would set apart Christ as Lord. Father, I also pray that You would commission these people. These are phenomenal people that You love. Me included, and thank You. And you're making something glorious out of us. 
And I pray, God, that you would send us out this week full of your life and your love and your hope and that we would be finely tuned for opportunities to share that with others. That we would be finely attuned to need. Finely attuned to want. Finely attuned to emptiness. Father, I think about us in that hotel room. That's where we are with our neighbors and with our friends and with our co-workers. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be attuned to the work of Your Spirit. You're calling others into life and hope. And help us to step into that gap this week. Make us the kind of people, God, this week that are ready to give an answer for the hope we have. (laughs) And we need You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.